Good morning. It's nice to see all of you here this morning, hungry for God and wanting to love Him more. I was asked to speak on the theme of faithfulness this morning, and in praying about that, my heart was drawn to one of the most classic passages, I think, in all the Bible. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Genesis to chapter 22, and I want to talk to you this morning about Abraham, who is, of course, in the Bible, one of the Well, he is, in fact, the classic example of faithfulness to God. He is called in the Word of God the Father of the Faithful. And so I want to talk to you about an event in his life that speaks so much to us today and has so much relevance for us as we go through our trials and our testings and as God continues to mature each one of us. Let's begin with a word of prayer, can we? Father, we come now and we submit our hearts to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are continuing to mold and to shape each one of us. I thank you, Lord, for these students here, so precious each one in this college. They have so much before them in terms of potential, in terms of your will and your plan for their life. And I pray, Lord, that our time together and your word this morning would be valuable to them and that it would bring lasting fruit in their walks with you and that all that they do in the ministries that you have before them. Lord, bless this time. Flood the eyes of our understanding with your light from heaven and drive the truth deep that we are learning here together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At 11.30 a.m., May 29, 1953, a man by the name of Sir Edmund Hillary achieved great fame in the world. He hoisted the British flag atop Mount Everest and became the first human being ever to climb to the top of the world. It was the climax to many long months of planning. The right men had to be chosen to help. The proper equipment brought. Long hours had to be spent in training and there had to be rehearsals in Nepal in a period of acclimatization to the height and the cold. There had to be early reconnaissance on the icefall. Then came the build-up, the stockpiling of supplies and the initial climbs. Not till then were the climbers ready for the final assault. Heavily burdened, they clawed their way upward through the cold. Every step was fraught with danger and discouragement. Disaster and death lurked in every crevasse. They kept on, forcing their way to the summit. In places, they hacked their way up through sheer walls of ice, defying fatigue, raging elements, lack of oxygen and bitter cold. Up and up the intrepid mountaineer went, clawing his way between cornice and rock and then on up the ridge. Steps had to be cut in the snow. Time and strength were both running out when at last a few more wax and the summit was gained. Sir Edmund and his partner stood where no man had ever stood before. 2,000 29,000 and two feet above the level of the sea. No man will ever climb higher on earth than that. Now, as we come to Genesis chapter 22, there is another mountain that rears its head, and it is not Everest, it is Mount Moriah. And here we see two men forcing their way up to the summit. But as we look at the account of these two men, we realize that it is steeper far than Everest. The road is tougher and costlier and harder. 
When at last Abraham and Isaac stood together on the brow of that summit, they stood on an eminence in a spiritual plateau that frankly was higher than any man had ever gone in spiritual things before. Mount Moriah represented to those men something very important. To Abraham, Mount Moriah represented the highest pinnacle of surrender. To his son, actually to Isaac, it represented the highest pinnacle of surrender because he was the one about to give his life. And to the father, the highest pinnacle of sacrifice, he was the one to let go of his son. It is a tremendous account that is full of emotion and full of feeling. And may I add, full of faithfulness. And the truth is, few men have ever climbed that high in spiritual things. And there is really only one peak in the entire Bible that is higher than that, and it is Mount Calvary, where our Lord Jesus Christ went alone to give His life and die for the sins of the human race. We have in front of us in Genesis 22 what I have entitled the ultimate test. I was asked to speak on the theme of faithfulness. And I want you to know that in my life as a Christian, it took me years to figure out that God tests each one of us as His children. And then as we grow in years and as we grow in the Christian life, God puts tests in our path. And He expects us to pass these tests so that we can go on to the other things that He has for us. And here we have the ultimate test. Now to give you a little background, Abraham, as many of you know, had been waiting for almost 100 years to have a baby. In fact, by the time he had Isaac, he was in fact 100 years old. He had waited a century to have a child. Promise after promise came. Year after year came and went and the child didn't come. Finally, he's 100 years old and Isaac is born to him. Well, he begins to enjoy Isaac in his life. He has had his share of trials and testings and now, as you read through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you find that you come to the place with Isaac and it seems that things are smoothing out a bit for Abraham. And as you go from chapter 21 to chapter 22, there is a time gap of 25 years. So by the time we come to chapter 22 and we see Abraham taking his son up the mountain, he is not taking a little boy he is not taking someone around the age of 5 or 8 or 10. Isaac is at this time a man. He is about 25 years old. So that brings us to where I want to begin here in our text. In Genesis 22, in verse 1, the first thing we see that happens to Abraham at this point in his life is what we could call a sudden test. The Bible tells us, in verse 1, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now just think about that. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. What I want to suggest to you right here before we go any further is that with the passing of time, all believers are tested. The text says it came to pass after these things. Time was going by. What I want to suggest to you is with the passing of time, all believers are tested the way that Abraham was throughout his entire life. God tested Abraham, the Bible says here. I want to spend some time on this thought with you because I think it's very foundational to everything that goes on with us as Christians. One thought I want to bring to your thinking is this. 
We should be expecting to be tested by God. We should be expecting it. It says, after this, as time was passing, Abraham was tested by God. We should all expect to be tested. The word here that's translated in the English as tested is the Hebrew word nasah. And it means literally to test or to prove. In most contexts that you find this word in the Bible, it has the idea of testing or proving the quality of somebody or something often through adversity and hardship. So from this term, we get the idea of the trial of our faith, and it's familiar to many of you. Sometimes you'll find a friend, and you'll sit down, and they'll say, how you doing? You'll say, well, I'm really going through a trial. Things have gotten really rough lately. Well, it all comes from this term here in this text, from this Hebrew word, nisah, and it has to do with the idea of God proving the quality of somebody's character and their faith. Now, just as Abraham had many tests in his life there are many tests in all of our lives and so we should expect them first peter 4:12 says dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you don't let your life fall apart when suddenly a test comes upon you a crisis comes upon you you should be expecting it and all of you, as you go through your schooling and go out into life and go out into the different ministries and callings that God has for you, you should be wise Christians. You should be expecting tests to come from God, just as you expect tests to come from your professors and your teachers, right? Every good student know who does well in school is that there is a test that's going to be coming. It's inevitable. And so you prepare yourself for it. So the first thought I want you to be thinking about here is we should all be expecting to be tested. Let me give you another thought. Not every difficult experience is a personal test from God. It took me a while to put this one together in my life. You see, not every difficulty that comes your way is a test from God. Yes, we should expect tests. Yes, many difficulties are tests, but not every difficulty is a test because sometimes just your own disobedience brings difficulty on your life, right? Your own disobedience gets you into a jam. It, it gets you into trouble. It's hard to get out of that jam. Well, that is something you brought upon yourself, and you don't want to necessarily take that and point the finger at God and say, well, God's testing me. No, you just got yourself into trouble, and there is a difference. So please understand that not every difficult experience is a test from God. So we should be expecting to be tested. We should realize that not every difficult experience is a test from God. And then let me take you further. We should discern between tests and temptations. You should be able to discern between a test from God and a temptation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Temptation comes from the sin within us, right? How many have found that out so far? Nobody here. What is this, a holy club or something? None of you have ever sinned? Do you realize sin comes from within you? How many have found that out so far? Three of you. That's great. I'll speak to you three. Anyway, we realize, you know it, sin comes from within you. And what happens is that Satan uses as a handle, as it were, the sin nature within you. And what he does is he, he works with that. One old Puritan used to say that the devil loves to sail with the wind. He likes to go with the wind, so he'll find your weakness and he'll play upon that. He'll use it as a handle in your life. Sin comes from within you as the devil seeks to tempt you and draw out the worst that is within you. The fact is, when temptation comes, 
It seems very logical to us, doesn't it? I mean, it seems at the time like the most logical thing to do. That's why you want to do it. There you are being tempted. You start thinking through it and you have about 110 reasons why you should give in, right? And often you do give in because it seems so logical. Well, temptation comes from the sin within us. The devil uses it as a handle and he tempts us. And we end up giving in because it seems so logical. Well, in reality, that is a lot different from a test that comes from God. Because God will test our faith to develop us for the betterment of our walk with Him. The devil will tempt us to destroy us, really. We've seen many lives destroyed as people give in to temptation and drop off by the wayside in the Christian life. So temptation comes from the sin within us. Tests of our faith come from God. Now, think with me on this. God tests us to draw out the best in us. And God will allow trials to come our way to test our faith that seem, here's the tricky part, that seem to be illogical. They don't seem to make sense at the time. They seem to be unreasonable. I mean, what could be more unreasonable than to follow after God, to leave your country, to leave your family, to become a pilgrim and a stranger and follow God every step of the way as Abraham did, to be told by God you're going to have a miracle son, to wait year after year, decade after decade for this miracle son, and then to have that son born when you're now 100 years old, what could be more unreasonable and illogical than for God to come to you and say, now I want you to take him and kill him? There is nothing beyond that, right, in terms of something being unreasonable, illogical, doesn't make sense. Well, testing of our faith from God often seems illogical, or unreasonable, and listen to this, that is actually part of the test. If it made so much sense, it wouldn't even be a test at certain times. Listen to the words of Warren Wiersbe. He says, Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable and to do what seems unreasonable and to expect what seems impossible. Let me give you that again. Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and to expect what seems impossible. So as you discern between temptation that comes from the devil, which often makes a lot of sense to your flesh, and tests that come from God, know that many of the tests that come from God are going to seem illogical, and that's why they're so difficult. That's why they stretch our faith. Abraham went through a test just like this. In Proverbs 17.3, it says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. One old saint put it this way. He said, The darker the night, the brighter the stars, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. And that's the way it works. God tests you. And when He tests you, it doesn't always make sense. And that is the time you need to draw near to God rather than away from God. You remember when Job's trial hit? You remember what he said in the middle of it all? In Job chapter 23.10, he said this, He knows the way that I take, and when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Peter was a man who was tested. 
And he wrote many years later in his epistle, 1 Peter 1.7, he said this, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was saying this, not only is your faith precious, but the trial itself, the test itself that comes to increase your faith, you must look upon that as precious as well. And one of the things that is involved in maturing as a Christian is somewhere along the line, you have to get to the point where you begin to embrace your trials and thank God for your trials and move in toward God in the midst of your trials rather than falling all to pieces and running around from person to person to person and this kind of thing. I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm a good person. I can't understand why God would allow this to happen to me. Somewhere along the line, you have to get over that. You have to get beyond that. And you have to embrace the fact, that's what Peter tells us, that the trial itself is precious. When the trial came upon Job, do you remember what he did? The Bible tells us that he shaved his head, he tore his garments, which was what they did in a hard time in those days, and then he got down on his knees, on his face, and he worshipped God. And that is the way we are to do it. We find that in Abraham here. You'll see as we move along. So what have we seen so far? We have seen that we should all be expecting to be tested. Not every difficult experience is a personal test from God. We should discern between tests and temptations when they come so that we can respond to them rightly. Let me take you to another thought. Get ready for this one. The little tests, and you know this as students, the little tests prepare you for the big tests. You see, the Bible tells us in Genesis 22.1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. After what things? Well, let's just go back in the life of Abraham. Abraham, from the very beginning of his walk, had been tested by God. Let me take you through some of the tests that he went through that led to this test in front of us in the passage. First of all, there was the family test. Do you remember that one? God came to Abraham and he said, Get up out of your country and leave your family behind and come and follow me. That was the family test. He had to leave his relatives in the very beginning. Then there was the famine test. Do you remember that? That's when the famine hit. Abraham failed that test. He went down to Egypt and he got into trouble there and he brought trouble back with him. Hagar, the Egyptian who was trouble later. There was the fellowship test. Do you remember that one? That's when there he was with Lot, his nephew, and they had their flocks and all their servants and everything was growing. And, and the test was of fellowship. Lot comes, he says, we need to divide. And he says, here, you take the good land. He passed that test with flying colors. Then there was the fight test. When the king, Kedaloamar, and the other kings allied with him, and they came down and they conquered Sodom and all the plain, and they took Lot's nephew captive. Remember that? And Abraham went after those armies that had destroyed everything in their path with about 300 men. He won the victory and he brought his nephew back and passed the test. That was a fabulous, fabulous victory in his life. But that brought another test because when he came back from the battle, he now had all of this wealth that he had picked up out there in conquering the kings. And he had all the wealth, really, of Sodom and other places. And the test there was, 
was he going to take the wealth of Sodom? And the king said, here, you can have all this. You, you, you rescued us. And he said, no thanks. I don't want any wealth from Sodom. And he, he left it. He walked away from it. Because he didn't want people to say, Abraham was made wealthy by this king of this wicked place. That was a fortune test. Then there was the fatherhood test. That's when Sarah, his wife, got impatient and, he, and asked Abraham to have a child by Hagar. He failed that test. Then there was the farewell test. And that is when it came time when God told him to send Ishmael away and let him go, even though it broke his heart because Ishmael up until that time truly was his son and they had grown so close. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you this. In your life, in my life, there are going to be tests. And the little tests that come your way are going to prepare you for the bigger tests that come your way. And so though it doesn't seem to be good news at the moment, there will be bigger tests in your life. You haven't gone through them all yet. You may have passed some of the recent tests in your life, some of the little ones that have come along, but know this, God will be using them to prepare you for a bigger test, which will make you even stronger in Christ. And let me add another thought to that. The testing ends when God has done the full work and not until then. Sometimes we get in the middle of a test, in the middle of a trial, and we just want to bail out. We try to find our way out of it. We try to run from God like Jonah did when he ran in the other direction from what God was leading. But know this, you can't run from God. And the test will end when God is done. God tests us. He works with us in seasons. Years ago, Matthew Henry put it very well when he said, If we cry to God for the removal of the oppression and affliction we are under, and it is not removed, the reason is not because the Lord's hand is shortened or His ear is heavy, but because the affliction has not yet done its full work. God will finish when He's finished. The intensity of the trial may even increase before He gets done. And so as we look at this sudden test that came upon Abraham, literally out of nowhere, we realize that with the passing of time, all believers are tested just like Abraham was. And with the passing of time, Abraham was tested in a big way. Find this in verse 2 of Genesis 22. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is a tremendously touching scene. Abraham has been going along for 25 years getting to know this miracle child he's waited for so long for. They've gotten so close. Can you imagine the kind of father and child relationship would be there with that nature of that kind of a relationship? And out of nowhere, there's peace and quiet and there haven't been tests for quite a while. And out of nowhere, God comes to Abraham and He says, I want you to take your son. Now watch how God awakens to Abraham the preciousness of his own son. He says, take now your son. That's the first thing. Oh, yes, my son, my miracle child, my only son, Isaac. Take now your son. But not only that, God says, take now your only son. Oh, yes, my only son. Take now, he goes even farther and sends the arrow deeper. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. I might add, with a very special love. And so that brings the preciousness of the relationship to Abraham's heart, which then only intensifies the test. And God then reveals the magnitude of the test to him in verse 2. He says, Take now your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and here comes the unthinkable thing, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So what has happened to Abraham? He's going along in his life. Everything's quiet. He's getting to know his son. It's enjoyable. It's wonderful. I love this boy. Thank you, God, for sending me Isaac. It was worth the wait. Oh, praise the Lord. Then all of a sudden, God shows up and he says, take him and burn him. Now, I don't know how you would respond at a time like that. I think I know how I would respond. But I want you to see how Abraham responds, because that's where the instruction comes. A sudden test has come upon him, and watch what happens. He comes to God now with a submissive response. And in doing so, he becomes a model to all believers of all time of how we should respond to God when a test comes our way. And I'm going to give you a number of thoughts on his obedience here. First of all, we find in verses 3 through 5 that his obedience was quick and unbroken. Here God comes, he says, I want you to take your son, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Rather than arguing with God, rather than running from God, rather than taking his son and traveling as far as he could get away from God, we read this, that his obedience was quick and unbroken. And we see this by the use of what is called a polysyndeton which you find that shows up in the King James Bible. You know how you see the word and, 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 and? That's a polysyndeton. It shows up by the multiple use of the word and. And what that tells us, you could miss this, what it tells us in verses 3 through 5 is that he has an unbroken obedience. That's the whole point of this word and showing up over and over again. Let me show it to you. In verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to the young, his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder, and worship, and we will come again to you. The whole passage is full of that. So you see what happens? God asks him to do something unthinkable. And unlike so many of us, rather than giving God a hassle about it, rather than running to all his friends about it, he gets up in the morning early. He starts right in to obey God. And then look at this. His obedience continues without missing a beat from there. So often, we will become convinced that God wants us to do something. It might even be something hard. And we become convinced God wants us to do this, and then we begin to dilly-dally about it. Well, what's God doing in your life? Well, you know what? He showed me that what He really wants me to do is this. Oh, and uh, when are you going to do it? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I even want to do it. What do you think? Do you think I should do it? Well, I don't know. I think that, you know, well, uh, you could do this other thing. Maybe I should do that other thing. But I thought you said God wanted you to do this thing. Well, he does want... Well, when are you going to do it? Oh, I don't know. Then we just burn up all this time. God says, I want you to do it. He becomes convinced. Listen, at the moment we're convinced of what God wants us to do, we should do it. And know this. Halfway obedience is disobedience. So he gets up early in the morning and begins to obey. And once he starts to obey, he doesn't stop. Here's another problem. Often we'll get to the point where finally we do begin to obey God. Then we draw back and we think, well, I don't know. 
I don't know if I like doing this. I know you called me to do it, but it's harder than I thought. And I've gone through that as a pastor. I became convinced God was calling me to the ministry, so I answered His call. Along the way, I have seen many, many difficulties. And there have been times when I've sat in my office when nobody is around, I said, God, I don't know if I like this. I think I'll go do something else. Let's see, what could I do? Um, nothing. Oh, well, I guess I'll keep doing what you've asked me to do. But you see, many times I've wanted to bail out. And frankly, let me tell you the truth. I've been a Christian now for 23 years. Along the way, I followed God's plan for about the first eight. And some of the, you watch this. This temptation will come your way. After eight years of serving God, giving Him everything, literally, even my paychecks every week, signing them over to missionary work, I drew back, decided I didn't like God's plan anymore, and went off to do my own plan, and I did it for three years. I broke my obedience. During those three years, I was lukewarm, I was miserable, I got into all kinds of sin and problems, and I look back on that as three wasted years of my life. Abraham got up in the morning. He saddled his donkey. Quick obedience. And then he did this. And then he did that. An unbroken obedience. May God grant to all of us a quick and unbroken obedience in our lives. Once we begin to obey and follow, let's follow Him all the way through. So His obedience was quick and unbroken. Obedience was rooted in the promises of God. It was rooted in the promises of God. This is how he did this incredible thing. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. That's very interesting. He's supposed to go to the top of the mountain and kill the lad. He says, you guys stay here. We're going to go up on top. We'll worship a little bit. And we'll be back. What do you mean we will be back? Maybe you will be back. But if you obey God, you're coming back alone, pal. No, we will be back. You know why he was able to say that? Because he believed the promises of God. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Hebrews real quick with me. Let me show you this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 fills us in on this entire incident tells us why he said the lad and I will be back. It's basically because he believed God would raise him from the dead even if he did slay him. And so Hebrews 11.17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He who had received, there it is, the promises, offered up his only begotten Son, of whom it was said, here's the promise, in Isaac your seed will be called, accounting, here's how he was able to do it, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now this word accounting in Hebrews is the Greek word legizomai. And it basically means to reckon, to count, or to compute, or to count over. And it has to do with reality. What is reality? Donald Gray Barnhouse, in uh, examining this whole passage, has some words that are so rich on this incident and how Abraham was able to 
place his feet on the promises of God and anchor himself in the promises of God to get through this test. They're so good, these words, I want to read them to you. He said, Abraham was surpassing Aristotle in the workings of his mind at this point. The fact that we are told that Abraham accounted that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead is the key to the story. Accounting is a mathematical, logical procedure. As Abraham and Isaac had walked for three days through the country, growing more and more desolate, and at the slow and measured pace of the burden mule, his mind went around and around the matter. He ultimately came to the calm conclusion that he was going to see a miracle. The method of his thought was as follows. This is what Abraham was thinking to himself. He's walking along, looking at his son, wondering how this is all going to work out. He thought this. God is not a liar. He cannot be mistaken. He told me beyond question that I should have a son. And there he walks before me. God has said that this son would be the one through whom he would fulfill all of his promises. Therefore the son must live or God will be found to be false. And yet God commands that this son should be put to death. Here, humanly speaking, is a contradiction. But there is, listen to this, there is no contradiction in God. That is the foundation fact. There is power in God. There is wisdom in God. There is majesty in God. But there is never, ever contradiction in God. But what is done with God's command? What is to be done with God's command to sacrifice my son? Since there is no contradiction in God, there is only one answer that my mind can fathom. God is going to perform a miracle and raise Isaac from the dead. Doubt may say that this is foolish, that there's never been a resurrection in the history of the world, but that doesn't make any difference. A resurrection is compatible with the nature of God, but contradiction is not compatible with the nature of God. God is life and the author of life. It would be a small matter for the God who created the universe, including the first man, to bring life back to a dead body. So the one clear, logical conclusion is that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And thus he went up the mountain to sacrifice him. Why is that important? Because, brethren, the only thing that is going to get you through and the only thing that's going to get me through is when we go through these hard tests and they don't make sense and all of our feelings are rebelling against what's going on, the only thing that can get us through are the promises of God. How many here have ever heard of the great man George Mueller? Great man of God. Known for his faith, known for his faithfulness. Do you realize that when people came to George Mueller toward the end of his life and they said, how is it that all of these prayers have been answered by God? How is it that all this money came in when you needed it and all these miracles? How is it you passed all those tests of faith that came your way? And he said simply this, every time I have ever found myself in great need, and gone to God in prayer about the need. I have opened up my Bible and I have placed my finger on the promise that Jesus or God gave concerning that need. And I have come to God with my finger on the promise and said, Here, God, is your word on the matter. I thank you, Lord, I have your word on the matter. I bring it to you and I look now for your provision. And he said, That has always been the secret to the answered prayers of my life. How was Abraham able to go up that mountain with this precious son of his to offer him? He looked back and he stood on all the promises that God had given him concerning his son.
So his obedience was quick and unbroken. His obedience was rooted in the promises of God. And let me take you to a further thought. His obedience was full of the warmth of worship. And I just want to touch on this. You see, so often we will obey God, but grudgingly. God, I'll do it. But we sort of grit our teeth and do it because we feel like God is bigger than we are. And we can't fight God. And so we'll do it. But Abraham knew God so well that when God even asked him to do the impossible, he said, I and the lad are going to go yonder. And what are we going to do? We're going to worship when we get there. His obedience was full of the warmth of worship, even in the middle of the test. And the final thing about his obedience is that it was without limit. And you know what this incident proves? It proves once and for all that there was nothing in his life that was off limits to God. Listen, if you miss everything else in this message, know this. This proves once and for all there was nothing in Abraham's life off limits to God. Let me read it to you. It says in verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the offering and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to his father and he said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Look, here's the fire and here's the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, you can see him put his arm around Isaac, probably has tears running down those old weather-beaten cheeks. And he says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering when the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and he placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. Isaac was 25 or so years old. Abraham was well over 100. Isaac could have said, you're not tying me to any, any altar and you're not killing me. Did you see the surrender of his son following the example of his father? And in verse 10, the Bible says, And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. You know what he proved in that moment? Abraham proved in that moment once and for all and forever to all men that there is a high form of obedience and the highest form of all when it comes to obedience is the obedience that has absolutely no limits upon it. God, you want me to do this? Then in your name I will do it. And he raises the knife up. He's about to slay his son. And you know what happens? When in your life there is a sudden test and you respond with a submissive response, know this, you will always be able to trust God to come through with a supernatural provision to meet your need in the midst of the test. And so here he is with a knife in the air, it flashes in the sun, and all of a sudden God stops him. And the angel of the Lord comes to him, he says, Abraham, he says, here I am, he says, don't lay your hand on the lad. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God and you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And the ram was caught in the thicket, you remember. God provided it. He took the ram. He offered it. He didn't offer his son. And he stood back and he called the name of the place. The Lord will provide. And he learned at that moment in his life that when you will submit to God in the midst of your sudden test, you can always count on God for his supernatural provision. And for the rest of his life, I'm sure he was able to live in this way. Of course, there is an entire second message 
And what happens on that mountaintop with the parallel and the types and all of Jesus Christ, but that is another story. I hope that this is ministered to you this morning. You're going to go through your tests. Take your tests like Abraham did and watch God provide for you. Can we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for our time together this morning. Thank you for this school and for this chapel. Continue, Father, to bless here in a marvelous way each one of these students. And we ask it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for having me with you. God bless you.